The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind up on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea, what would do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. There you go. Okay, good afternoon all. As you almost certainly know, I'm James, and I'm a member here at Community Kenilworth Community Church. And it's a great privilege to be starting our series in Jonah today. So as John said, it would be helpful if you can have the passage open in front of you. I'm going to set a tiny bit of context. Hopefully that will be useful for the entire series. And then there'll be three things that I will look at from this passage, uh, which I'm going to frame as three questions. Firstly, what does wickedness look like? Secondly, what crucial fact has Jonah forgotten? And third, what do we learn about God from this passage, from how he handles the situation? What does wickedness look like? What has Jonah forgotten? And what do we learn about God? So to set the scene, imagine with, with me, if you will, um, that it's a Saturday morning in Gath Heifer, Jonah's hometown. And he's putting the kettle on, cooking some breakfast, and looking forward to a day doing whatever he does to relax. And God shows up and tells him to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, a wicked nation that was the enemy of Israel, to preach against it. Why? Because their wickedness has come up before him. Now, 
if we look elsewhere in the Bible, we learn very quickly that Nineveh is a city full of iniquity. God himself tells us so in this passage, but we can look, and John, if you'll put the first verse up, um, at Nahum chapter 3 and verse 1, um, where we get a glimpse of what um, the prophet has to say. He says, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without its victims. So these are people who are constantly committing acts of war, stealing, lying, oppressing people. Or to get an even more visceral and up close idea, um, John, if you could go on to the next slide, let's look at these verses from Isaiah 37. And pardon me for butchering the names. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew from attacking Israel. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, whilst he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Shaharezar killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. So, as you can see, it's truly a den of wickedness. The entire city would have been the part that you don't want your children uh, to go to. Uh, thank you, John, if you can take that down. So, how might you have responded if you were Jonah? Jonah was probably feeling a mix of, a mixture of revulsion, fear, confusion, and he would probably have had a lot of questions. What might your response have been? Well, Jonah's response was to get up and go, but sadly, he didn't go to Nineveh. Instead, he goes down to Joppa, a port city, to flee to Tarshish. Now, if you're not sure where Tarshish is, don't worry, no one is completely sure, but the best guess that scholars seem to have um, is that it's on the southern tip of Spain. So I found this map, uh, John, if you can put the next picture up, um, which should give us an idea of what's going on. Hopefully you can see that Jonah's intent is crystal clear. Nineveh is in one direction and Tarshish is in the complete other direction. And not just that, it's about as far as you could go. To Jonah's mind, this was the other end of the world. He's trying to run from God, to get away from his presence. And so he heads down to Joppa and finds a boat, which conveniently is headed in exactly the direction he had already wanted to go. Maybe he saw it as a providence. Anyway, having paid his fare, he goes on board and he goes once again, the text is down into the hold of the ship and he has a nap. And at this point, I want to ask my first question. What does wickedness look like? Because as we have seen, Nineveh is definitely a wicked city. But I think that we see some of the other end of what wickedness looks like. Because Jonah, in his outward appearance, looked pretty good. He's had a successful ministry. Um, we see in 2 Kings chapter 14, um, I think this is the next verse, John, um, that Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath the, to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, as spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hepher. So as you can see, Jonah has had a successful ministry. He was a prophet. He was one of the people chosen by God and he was an Israelite. So he's, he was one of the nation who was chosen by God. And on top of all of that, he paid his fare. He wasn't stowing away. And, you know, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with going to Tarshish. You know, it's southern Spain is a fine holiday destination. 
but in spite of all appearances, I think that this text and the rest of the book shows us that Jonah is wicked too. Because just as Nineveh is far from God's will in its behaviour, we see Jonah trying to put himself far from God, both physically and spiritually. We will, of course, see further implications of what this looks like in later chapters. But for now, we see Jonah simply saying by his actions that he wants no more to do with God than Nineveh does. We aren't told yet why he's disobeyed, and I think that is partly the point. It doesn't really matter yet. His sin is not primarily fear or hatred of the Ninevites or whatever other reasons you could imagine. His sin is that he is rejecting the word of God. Now, how might we apply this? Because we are Kenilworth Community Church. We're based in Kenilworth, a rather civilised town. And we have been blessed corporately as a church with remarkable growth. And don't get me wrong, this is all good. This is all wonderful. And I believe given by God. And there's an extent to which, you know, that looks good. Um, and yes, I do know lots of you at Kenilworth. And to the extent that I do know, I believe that this good image that we have is also a genuine reflection of the hearts that have been renewed by Christ. But let us be careful not to conflate a good appearance with genuine godliness. Maybe be careful to continue to strive for God's desire and not just to look at what things look like. And on the flip side, let us take care that we don't define wickedness by outward appearance only and think that the more visible a sin is, the worse it is. I don't say this as someone who's worked it all out. I fall into this trap all the time. But as God shows us in this book, sin is just as sinful when it is hidden as when it is in plain sight. Because as we've seen, the Ninevites were wicked, but Jonah was wicked too. And so if we hop back onto the story, we shall see how Jonah was able, in spite of all of his blessings of being a prophet, of being an Israelite, of knowing God, how he was able to go down this path. What truth had Jonah forgotten? Well, let's continue with the story. He has gone down into the hold of the boat and the sailors set sail. They pull out of the docks, the tide is going out, and the boat starts its long journey to Tarshish, carrying its cargo for trading at the port. And they wouldn't have been eight hours into the journey when a storm suddenly comes upon them. And these are experienced sailors, they know how to listen to their boat. It's creaking and groaning under the pressure of the waves, and they hear it as if it's saying to them that it's threatening to break up. And they're terrified, because if the boat goes down, they all go down. There is no lifeguard, no radio signal, no one who would know that they had sunk or even where to find them if they did know. This was a deadly situation. And more than being good sailors, they are religious men. They cry out to their gods. I don't think it's too wild a guess to say that they have a sense that this is no ordinary storm. They're praying each to their own god in the hopes of getting through. And then the captain hasn't an, has an idea. Wasn't that Jonah fellow religious? Weren't the Israelites always going on about their God? So he races downstairs and he asks, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then some smart sailor says, let's see whose God has sent this. And they cast lots. They play a game of chance in the hopes of finding out who is behind the storm. 
And we are told elsewhere in scripture that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. There are no truly random events. And so they find out, and God reveals to them, that it is Jonah. And the questions rain down on him. I can imagine one of them saying, who are you? Another, what is your job? Where are you from? Of what kind of people are you? And he answers them. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who has made the land and the sea. And there it is. That is the kicker. This is what Jonah has forgotten. In so many ways, I think, forgetting this truth is what has shaped Jonah's actions. So <clears throat> let's work backwards. He's trying to run from the Lord as though by going by sea to the furthest bit of land there is, he would get away from God's sight. So, you know, he's the God of the land and the earth. He's trying to get away from that by going through the sea. That is just plain foolishness. And before that, well, he's fleeing because he didn't want to go to the Ninevites. He was happy enough, it seems, to deliver God's message to Israel. But he had forgotten that God is just, has just as much reason to send a message to the Ninevites as to the Israelites. God is just as much a God of Nineveh as he is the God of Israel. And most importantly, he had forgotten that God was his God. Um, that as Psalm 39, and John, I think that's in the PowerPoint as well, puts it, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Um, and here is where I want to draw my second point of application, because God is the God of the land and the sea and the heavens and of all the people and of all aspects of life. To borrow a quote from Abraham Kuyper, and John, I think that's the next slide, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, and indeed over all of our creation, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So, I wonder if you have ever thought, um, like Jonah, have you ever thought a thought like this? God is the God of Sunday at 4pm, but God is not the God of the workplace. God is the God of my parents' house, but he has nothing in particular to say about me at school. God is the God of a few churches up and down our country, but he is not the God of Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. God is the God of the past, but he is no longer relevant for today. If you have had any of these thoughts, or if this way of thinking has influenced your life in any way, then I hope and pray that you can dispel them and start thinking of all of life as belonging to God. And this is something that I as well have been trying to work out. So, of course, the obvious question is what might, for us, what might this look like? And to answer that fully would take a lifetime of discovery because our lives are complex. God has made them full of many things. But there are two applications that I think will reach remarkably far and help set us up to think about the rest of it quite well. And those two are time and money. And don't worry, I'm not going to say, so let's think about money. I'm not going to say give more or put more effort into, and time into doing church work because that once again completely misses the point. I'm not saying that God is the God of more of your time or of more of your money. That's not what the Bible says. 
what I think the Bible says is that God is the God of all of it. And what that means is that the money that you have is from God. When you give money as a tithe, it is to God's glory. And when you spend money on leisure, may it be to God's glory as well. Enjoy it, but enjoy it with thankfulness as God's gift. And don't spend it on things that dishonor him. And in all sorts of other ways, think about every aspect of your money as being from God and given by God. Likewise for time, you know, it would be easy to say, oh, you must give just another hour a week to whatever ministry it may be. But no, I think that time is God's gift that he has given us and that we are to enjoy. So enjoy time spent with God's people because church is a blessing. But also, for instance, enjoy time sleeping, recognizing that, as the psalmist says, God gives sleep to those he loves. And give all of your time at work to God's glory, not merely working for your own advancement. Much more could be said on this, but I'm not the person to say this. God has given you the ability to look it up in the Bible and the help of his spirit to interpret it and Christian friends with whom to chat to help you work this out in all of the detail that it's going to need. So let's go back to Jonah, because this begs the question. If God is the God of everything, what sort of news is that for those who have disobeyed him, as Jonah has? Well, the sailors and Jonah are in a deadly storm. As I've said, if the ship sinks, there is no coast guard, no GPS trapping, no hopes of swimming to shore. If the ship goes down, they all drown. And they want to find a way out of their predicament. And so they ask Jonah what to do. And he tells them that the only way for the storm to stop is if he is thrown overboard. And at first they try to fix it, as so many people do, as I have so often tried to do on their own backs. They try to row back to shore. This is a common response to try to fix, it, fix our sin on our own. But God has other plans, and so the sea grows ever more wild. Eventually, the sailors agree to throw him overboard. And they cry out to God that they may not be held responsible for this man's life. And we have gotten to the first side of the coin, because I think that this shows us that the wages of sin are death. Now, don't hear me wrong. Not every storm that comes your way is because of your sin. The sailors were not in the storm because of their sin. There were far more sailors on the boat than there were Jonas who were running from the Lord. That is not the point. The point is that the wages of the sin are ultimately death, and this is a picture of that. Throwing Jonah overboard was, in the minds of everyone present, including Jonah, a death sentence, because the wages of sin are always death. Uh, John, if you could put the next picture up. Now, this is a picture um, of botulinium neurotoxin. It's the most deadly poison known to man. <coughs> Pardon. Three grams of this, under the right circumstance, could kill everyone in England. You'd be pretty careful to avoid this stuff, right? Even the smallest trace of it can lead to death. And the Bible is clear that sin is even more deadly. I often fall into the trap, and I think many of us do, of thinking that sin is balanced against good deeds. But 
no one in their right mind would balance healthy food out against this neurotoxin. No one would do that. And I don't know in what areas of your life you're tempted to minimise sin. I know that I do far too often. And I know that when we do, we are falling into a very dangerous way of thinking. And so, so far, this looks like really bad news. God is the God of everything, and he will not tolerate sin. But to the extent that we are able to understand how bad sin is and how deadly sin is, we will be able to rejoice in what is coming next. Because after Jonah has been flung overboard, the raging sea grew calm. Now, I haven't talked that much about the sailors yet, but it has been made clear to us that they do not obey the God of Israel. They were as polytheistic as you get, but God has gone out of his way, it seems, to save them. I say God saves them because it's certainly not Jonah, not directly. He had told them that he was running from God and then had gone to sleep. Before they had shown Jonah any sign of turning to God, God had intended to show them who he was. The storm was not sent after them, but they sure as anything deserved punishment for their sin as much as Joan did and as much as the Ninevites did. And what does God do for them? Well, he still see. And I think that this is a picture. This isn't an exact parallel, but it's a picture of the punishment being deserved taken away from them. The sea is still immediately because God is no longer at war with the sailors. He has made peace with them. Though sin is deadly and always leads to death, God's intent to show mercy is stronger. And what is the sailor's response? To fear and worship God. It's as simple as that. And honestly, that is the application. If you are aware that God has the power to forgive to your, your sins, then turn to him in fear and offer sacrifices and make vows. And if, as I know so many of you are, you have been forgiven, if you believe that God has forgiven you, then recognise that his kingship over all aspects of your life is a good thing and trust and worship him. And of course, I haven't quite finished the story because what about Jonah? And I agree with the um, Jewish scriptures that verse 17 is best viewed as the start of chapter two, but you already know the story and I don't think a cliffhanger is the most helpful way of leaving this. So I'm going to encroach four words into the next part of the story. But the Lord provided. Because for all of his wickedness, for all of his unrepentance, God is providing for Jonah. God is providing a way out of and through death when Jonah has no way out of him, out himself. He has gone down from Bethpheber, down to Joppa, down into, down to the boat, down into the hull of the boat, and now he has been thrown down into the sea and he is at rock bottom almost literally and yet God is providing and I would have liked um, to have chosen the song for the end of the service but it's not in our song software so I've picked our closest alternative but instead of singing the song I would have picked I would like to read the first verse of it to you it's and you probably know it, it's his mercy is more and it says, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Um, 
And so I'm going to pray and then I'm going to put it back to you, John. Our Father God, we thank you that whilst so often we see ourselves in this story, maybe not um, refusing to go to Nineveh, but refusing to listen to your word nonetheless. Because I know that I have fallen into this trap many times this week, and I know that all of the brothers and sisters um, on the Zoom call who are with me recognize that too. And we thank you and praise you that whilst we can do nothing to save ourselves, you have provided a great way out. And for that, Lord, we worship you. Amen.